What a moment. What a moment for Taylor Davis. First major league home run. Rob Zestrisny is a left-hander, just signed with the Pirates, but has spent parts of four major league seasons with the Cubs, with the Mets, with the Angels. Has a World Series ring that you probably don't wear around all the time. You probably have that in a nice, secure place. Uh, Native Canadian playing for Team Canada in the World Baseball Classic. Uh, and a former what minor league mate of Taylor Davis and major league mate of Taylor Davis. So, Rob, appreciate you taking the time, man. Yeah, thank, thanks for having me on. Yeah, I was a major league teammate with Taylor to end it, I think. So that's good. That, that's all I care about. Yeah, it's yeah, not where you start, yeah. right? Exactly. What have you done for me lately? It's a, what have you done for me lately league? And that's what we have done lately. Yes. hundred percent. So you're about to hop into WBC ramp up, right? You are hopping into, um, and we were just talking about it before we hit the record button, but you are on Canada's roster. You will go to Phoenix. You'll play at Chase Field. Um, that pool, you just said Canada, Mexico, Colombia, Great Britain. How freaking cool is that to be a part of the World Baseball Classic? Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely pretty excited. Um, I'm kind of fake Canadian. I was born in Canada and then I moved to the U.S. So every, everybody... And then he moved to Texas. He went like the exact opposite route. Yeah. No, and my parents wanted coastline and they were like, okay, where can we live on the coast where it's super inexpensive? And they chose Corpus Christi for whatever reason. And everyone down in Corpus calls me Canadian. They're like, dude, your accents, whatever. And then I go play for Team Canada two years ago and they're like, oh, what's up, cowboy? What's up, cow? And I'm like, no, great. I don't fit in with either one. So my mom, my mom, uh, her parents got divorced when she was young and she lived half her life or half of her like year in Alaska and half of her year in Texas. She would tell all the kids in Texas that she lived in an igloo and she would tell all the people in Alaska that she rode a horse to school. I mean, you can definitely get away with it. They're so far apart that neither one knows what the other one does. Yeah. <laughs> right. And and nobody from like those worlds is ever going to cross over again. Right. Yeah. Unless it's at like a wedding or anything like that, they'll never see each other. So you can get away with as many lies as you had. So uh, <laughs> did you have any great lies about like being a Canadian when you did grow up in Texas? No. And to be honest, I was, I'm, this is going to sound bad, but I was a little bit ashamed of it because they, they made fun of me so much. I was like, Oh, like, I don't even like Canada, whatever. And then I played for team Canada and I loved it. Like the guys were the best and everything. And uh, I remember my first bus trip there, I was starting against uh, the Japanese team. And I was like, just kind of getting locked in for my start. And they go, get Rob Z to the front of the bus. And I was like, oh, great. So I walked <laughs> and they're like, sing O Canada. And I was like, all right, I know like seven words. And I got like through the seven that I know. And by then the entire bus was like belting it out like crazy. And dude, it was like, that moment, I was like, these guys really like take this seriously. They 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 love the, the the country, obviously, and I've been bought in ever since. So, did you see the Crown Royal commercial during the Super Bowl, like saying it pretty much everything that Canada has given the United States? No, I did not see it. But was I on that commercial? No, you were not on that commercial. Should have been. Sorry. Should have been. Me and Justin Bieber and Drake. Yeah, yeah. It, it, and those are the three. That's it. Um, That's pretty much what I could list if I was off the top of my head. Yeah, that's the only thing I got. I think Ryan Gosling's from there too. There we we're, go. We're, we're like the same guy, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, he's not quite as pretty. Mm-hmm. Correct. So you just mentioned that somebody called you Rob Z. Um, Zestrizny. Do people call you Z? Like, how how do people go about that? So how effortlessly you just said it, I know you did your research because that is not an easy one to get your first time. Well, I just um, cut it off the top of the pot, but I called you a, a right-hander. So 
that, that is true. So you get the hard part and then the easy part that's on the playing card you can't get, which yeah. is fascinating to me. Um, <laughs> so funny thing about my last name, I couldn't say it till fourth grade. I, I had a lisp when I was younger and I could not say it. So I was the one who started Rob Z. I wouldn't let anyone call me anything else and I couldn't say it. And then it just stuck from then on out. I didn't even know that story. That's yeah. cool. Man. I do know that I do. It is funny because like guys that would come up, like when they were like when we were playing together in Iowa, like guys would come up and they'd be like, "Hey, like how do you how do you how do you say his name? Like how do you say it?" And like if somebody said his name right every time, Rob, like, "Wow, good for you, you said it right, nice." If he didn't say it right, no, that's not it. Try again. Come later. Well, what I've started doing because I've been on so many teams the last four years is no matter what anyone says, I just say yes. So like, oh, it's Zinstrinsky, huh? And I'm like, that's it. And so yeah. I have so many different pronunciations of my name because I've just said correct to all of them. Because I don't think there's any worse feeling than like, hey, it's Zestrizny. And they try to say it again, it's wrong. I'm like, no, 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 Zestrizny. And I just feel like I'm like directing them through a one vowel word that shouldn't even exist. So I, I just say yes, no, no matter what. So what I will say from like an announcer perspective is don't say yes to whatever because like we're super sticklers about that like we want to get it right and we've yeah. interacted with so many dude like i've talked to so many 50 60 somethings that are like tv and radio voices either at the major league level or the minor league level and you know there's like this really complex name they'll ask the guy like hey i have you right in front of me how do you say your name and they'll try, they say yes, and then they learn like they've been saying it wrong for the last like five years. So don't let any like TV or radio guy get away with that. Um, so there are certain people that I will correct, and that's the TV and radio guys. But I do have a good story about that. I'm about two weeks into my debut. I get called up August 19th, and I'm about two weeks into that stint. And we go to Dodger Stadium, and uh, I get to the clubhouse. I'm unpacking my bag, and Len Casper walks up to me, and he goes, hey – there's someone out there who wants to talk to you. And I go, okay, assuming it's like a friend of mine or someone I know that works for the Dodgers or whatever. And it's Vin Scully. Yeah. And I know his voice and that's how I recognized him, but I didn't really recognize his like face. And plus like people in person look a little bit different. And he goes, how do you say your last name? And I told him, and he like walked me through it two or three times. And I, I told him the, the exact name. And like, he asked like three or four questions about me and he used every single bit of information I gave him in the broadcast. And it was just That's incredible, it. his his record, like he didn't write any of it down. He just stood there, nodded his head and dropped every fact that I had on myself that I dropped in there in the game broadcast. That's, That's cool. Is That's he a it. legend for you, Jack? Like, is he, is he the peak? I mean, like, yeah, he's, he's Vin Scully, right? Like I, I grew up, um, yeah, obviously the generation before me was very like Vin and all that, but I, I caught the tail end of Vin and I was super in on that, but um, I love that you mentioned Len because like Len and Pat Hughes were the guys that I grew up with. Like I would listen to Pat Hughes on the radio and all that. So, um, but obviously you guys came up together. You finished at the bigs together in Chicago. Taylor, what are your favorite uh, Rob Zestrizny uh, memories? Well, before, before we get into that, I do want to make one note about the world baseball classic thing, because we talked about this Jack with Austin Bryce about how like Rob, I'm sure was in a really tough spot spot to make a decision yeah. on if he even wanted to pitch because rob's trying to make a team right like rob was in the big leagues up and down last year uh, <clears throat> for the first time in a few years he really put something together that's a kind of guy that shows up to camp that like like we talked about rob's gonna get to go throw in, in front of people and he's gonna be on track man and it's gonna be everything 
but he's not necessarily throwing in front of of the Pirates guys. So, like, that's a guy I'm sure, Rob, for you, like, that was probably not the easiest decision. Although, I'm sure, like, everybody wants to pitch for their country. Like, how cool is that? But, like, at the end of the day, the most important thing for you is making that Pirates team. Um, you're You're exactly right. So, when I was with the Angels last year, they called me, like, the second last day of the season and said, hey, keep your calendar open. We, we, we want you to play. And so, I, I went up to Perry Maniason. I was like, hey, I want to do this. And I don't know what's going to happen this offseason, but I want to do this. I want to check it with you guys first. And he was like, dude, absolutely go play. And so, I was all gung-ho until I got non-tendered, signed with the Pirates about a week later. And uh, I asked them, I was like, hey, like, the decision just became a lot harder for me. I want to play. Before I sign my contract, I'm letting you guys know I want to play. And the first thing they said was, we'll be able to evaluate you more watching the World Baseball Classic than we will in spring trainings. Like, that's the closest thing you're going to get to big league reps. And, I mean, some of the environment will be like big league playoff reps. And he was like, we will get everything we need to see from you in the world baseball classic. But I also couldn't imagine like if we go to the next round, you miss another week and a half. And if you go to the championship round, you miss another three days. And it goes from, Hey, I'm going to miss nine days of camp, maybe two outings to I'm going to miss five big league camp outings or six big league camp outings. Yeah. Right. Um, all right. So yeah, let's go, let's jump into favorite stories. So and then we'll get back to the WBC. Cause I do want to ask oh, about Canada and we, the roster there. No, finish it. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I mean, I'm just thinking like, this is a great roster. And, and you talk about missing five, six, you know, big league camp outings. You actually could be looking at that because you got Freddie Freeman on this team and you got guys like Pavetta and Quantrill and Matt Brash, and you've got great prospects like Naylor and Edouard Julien. What's your experience with like this roster and, and how good do you think this Canadian team is? So the, the time that I played, a lot of the pitchers couldn't play. It was right after season, and, like, uh, Quantrill was young. Pavetta had thrown, like, 180 innings. So a lot of the, those guys backed out. Um, this is the first time we've kind of had the pitching staff. Like, Brash is in there, like you said, and Pavetta and Quantrill are starting. And it, it excites me a lot. I know Votto, um, Bo Naylor, or Josh Naylor, it was, it's Josh Naylor, and uh, a guy named Charles LeBlanc all backed out because of either injury or because of the situation or whatever. Yeah. And having those three guys in the lineup would have helped a ton, but um, I, I've been reading up on that that Julian kid and a couple other guys, and like there there's some bangs. yeah there are some really good baseball players like and the other thing I like about our <clears throat> room, it's a lot of guys who have a lot to prove, so it's going to be a lot of guys go, going out there and putting it all on the line, you know like we got a lot of guys who are trying to make their club, a lot of guys who are trying to like playing for Team Canada for the first time and everything, so I, I think the energy is going to be there for sure. You ready for story? Yeah, I'm ready. Let's do it. All right, I'm, I'm just going to lead up to it. But, well, actually, you know what? Let me start with this. I thought one really cool aspect of, of Rob's career, like probably the wildest ride to get to the big leagues in, like, of 16, like high pick out of Missouri, um, you know, moved up relatively standard, right? Like pretty much level to level, whatever. But it was like starter gets hurt, uh, gets – but not arm, gets – hitting the foot, gets turned in back into a starter, gets turned into a reliever, turns into a long guy, turns back into a reliever, gets to the big leagues. I just – I tell everybody this because I just remember this. And, like, when Rob first got called up, I remember reading an article on MLB.com or somewhere, and it was a quote from Joe Madden. After we had – after the Cubs had traded for Aroldis Chapman, talking about how Rob was going to get some save opportunities in that bullpen. And it was just – at the time, you know, Aroldis was the best at – 
arguably had ever played outside of Craig Kimbrell um, and, and Mariano, obviously. But uh, anyway, cool ride. Rob, you got to tell, you have to tell the World Series story. Okay, I, I know this is Taylor's favorite, and it's one of my favorites too because it in the long run it doesn't matter, but it just it was at the time it was incredible. So we win the World Series, we go back to the clubhouse, it's jam packed, like you can't move anywhere, and so I'm like stuck between a group of guys I can't remember who, and they have all this uh, the the plastic up covering all the lockers, right? And so guys are spraying bottles and stuff, and like hitting everything but the plastic's covering absolutely everything in the club i was like there's like a game machine in there they have it covered they have everything covered and so i don't have a care in the world happiest cloud nine whatever and i kind of wander towards my locker and i see that the the thing is down like the, the the draping covering my locker has fallen down and so only my locker is exposed and it's 20 yards from me and i am watching champagne being shot into my locker and I cannot get around enough people to get there. And people are just like, I remember it was like, it was like Tommy Hadovy and those guys are like just shooting champagne all over and it's just going into my locker. And so I walk over there and I go check and my headphones are ruined. My cell phone is dead. I don't know if it's even going to turn back on. Everything is absolutely ruined. My outfit to wear on the plane home soaked <laughs> in champagne. And so in the middle of this World Series celebration, arguably one of the best World Series wins of all time, I'm tracking down a clubby to put my laundry in so I can make the flight home. And it was so funny to just like- And I just can't imagine, like, you couldn't talk to anybody. You had no no cell phone. Like, look, talking to our parents, like, I I mean, you couldn't make any of those phone calls, which honestly, you, I'm sure your phone was blowing up to the point that it might've been a little nice there. But like, dude, I'm married. If my, you know, you were probably engaged at the time, dude. Like, if if I'm winning the World Series, my wife knows what's happening in that clubhouse. I'm, I'm not going to be able to talk to her or tell her that for the rest of the night. I can't imagine that. And, like, I just, the whirlwind of emotions that had to be going through your head. And, yeah. Jack, it was it was torn down because somebody wanted to get better pictures. Dude, it no. was just, That's, that, I forgot that part of the story. I watched the guy tear it down. Oh, so I, he he's up on the like on the bench getting a better shot, and he couldn't like get his arm to hold the camera, so he tore down the thing in front of my locker so he could move his arm into my locker to take video. You should have like built him for oh, the suit. And then so I was upset, but whatever. I, I just remember now the worst feeling was going to my phone, having it be off, and knowing that like I went to my locker as soon as I got there. And I was like, should I grab my phone to video this celebration? And I was like, you know what? No, I'm going to live it moment. I'm going to live this moment. (laughs) I don't need my cell phone. And I come back five minutes later and it's destroyed. Sure enough, you didn't need it. You didn't need it. I did not need it. And (laughs) thankfully, I have my wife's number memorized and my parents. So I called them, made sure they were good. And then I was like, whatever happens the rest of this week, who cares? My, My phone is dead. Right. I'm off the grid. Walk me through the timeline of like, okay, you guys win the World Series. Obviously, you, everybody sees like on Fox, you, you see the cameras in the clubhouse, all that. What happens after that? Like, like what's that period from winning the World Series to parade? Let me let me give let me give you a let me give you an interesting tidbit before he gets into that, because I wasn't there. But I heard this story that I, I'm sure you've heard this story, Rob. But this was told to me by uh, it might have been the traveling secretary at the time. I don't remember who told me this story, but apparently this is so pre-rain delay pre-Rajai Davis home run, the Indians staff was fixing the Cubs clubhouse. 
getting it ready to get, they were prepping it for the thing, right? They're in there. Everything's getting tarped up. All the champagne's getting done. Apparently, like, they, Rajai hits the homer. The Indians clubhouse guy looks at his phone. Everybody, we got to go. We got to go. They all leave there to go do the same thing in Cleveland's clubhouse. Yeah. Interesting tidbit. All right. Sorry. Go. So, so along those lines, last year with the Mets, I played with Carlos Carrasco, who was, I believe, hurt at, at the time. He didn't throw. Or maybe he was coming out of the pen. I can't remember if he was. But I talked to him because I remember being in there in about the seventh inning to go talk to Kyle Hendricks, and they had everything wrapped up. And then I went back out, lived that disastrous home run moment. And so I talked to Carrasco, and I told him about, like, them taking all the stuff out of our clubhouse. And so when they went and put it in their clubhouse, there was like two or three guys, including him, that were like, get this out. Like they were freaking out. And like the whole rain delay, they were like getting the stuff out of their clubhouse. So it was like the awful moment for us after the homer as they're taking stuff out. And then the awful moment for them as they're taking it out. So we both lived it. And like that crew had so much moving around to do that game because that, that was the craziest game that I've ever seen in person by far. Yeah. I mean, dude, and we just relived the Dexter Fowler homer, right? Like he's with Marquis now. So, I mean, that game just brings so many memories back to, I think, every baseball fan. And you didn't need to be a Cubs fan. You didn't need to be an Indians, Guardians fan, whatever. It's it's just like that was the pinnacle of baseball. So being in the dugout for that, what was that like riding that roller coaster of emotion? And, and then I want to ask you about the timeline from winning to parade. I will never forget, and I hope he doesn't get mad that I say this, but I was sitting next to Albert Almora, who ended up having a monster role in that game after we had had that combo. And I'm sitting there, and the homer goes out, and it's it's a loud stadium, but for some reason, like, when it's quiet in a dugout, Taylor can tell you this, like, even if the stadium's erupting, you can hear the silence in the dugout. And, like, Albert is just sitting there looking at it, and he's just leaning over the rail, and I just look at him, and I look back, and he goes, maybe this curse is real. Because it was just one of those, like, unbelievable – there's no way that should have happened. Like, I'm, I'm sure if you looked at Raji Davis's stats in a 2-2 count against lefties, he's got, like, two career homers or something crazy. That was the most – he was choked up. I mean, I, I didn't have something to pull up. He had this much bat underneath his hands. Like, yeah. he, he wasn't even attempting to hit that ball out of the infield. I remember watching – like, I remember watching Chris get ready to throw the ball. And for those who remember, like, Chris slips. And yeah. I specifically remember – thinking in my head this would be the most cubs thing of all time if he throws this ball away and that's how they lose that game yeah if we lose that game because his foot slips on like a fairly wet grass after a rain delay and i tweeted it the other day it was like five years since the world not the other day i guess a couple years back it was five years since the world series and they posted the video of chris and i just like tweeted like I still have a panic attack whenever I see his foot slip and it got like thousands of favorites because everybody, when they saw the foot slip, because the, the, the camera followed and it looked like that ball was overthrown. Yeah. I still panic. Even when I see it now, it's like, how did that ball stay in Rizzo's? Like, <laughs> That's terrifying. So walk me through that timeline. You guys win the world series. What happens next? So, after we win, we go. I'll go from carrying David Ross off the field. Like they let him leave, and said, I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. Like just because we had talked about it for a month, they were like, "If we win this thing, we're like carrying you off the field, and you're retiring." And uh, so that happens. We we get showered up. It, it's a kind of a blur from there to the plane. 
man, I remember the plane being an absolute like riot. Like guys were running up and down the aisles, like the trophy was being passed around. Everyone was kind of taking a picture. So we land, uh, I think it was Arietta goes, I'm going straight to like tacos and tequila or whatever the re the restaurant was. And, um, they, they had like the entire fire station police crew in Chicago there to greet us when we landed. <clears throat> it, it was all cool. And then you guys are going to laugh at me, but I texted our travel secretary. I hadn't been home in like a full calendar year because I was instructs, uh, January camp, November camp. Like I didn't leave. I hadn't seen my parents in like a year other than them coming to see me. And I just wanted to go home. So I texted our travel secretary and I, I go, Hey, is the parade mandatory? Not because I didn't want to go, but because like I was thinking about like going celebrating with the boys one more time and then like bouncing early or like taking the straight an Uber straight from the parade to the airport or whatever it would be. Like I just wanted to go home and I was like trying to get, get my travel stuff and I was going to leave that night. And I remember him texting me back and saying, whatever you do, don't leave before this parade and make sure you enjoy the parade. And I, I don't know, I've seen some parades where it's just like, a couple streets, right? Like you, you see a couple streets full of people and you're just like, Oh, that was fun. And like, give the, like the, the, the fans are the best fans ever. And you, you wave at them and everything. And I remember when we were leaving Wrigley on the bus, it was kind of like that. There was like a couple thousand people, like, like all around. And I was like, Oh, this is pretty cool. And I had no idea that the parade hadn't even started yet. Yeah. And then when we got to downtown, I didn't see pavement for 35 minutes. <clears throat> it was one of the, it was one of the top 10, largest human gatherings of all time yes and I, I'm, I'm not joking with you like i actually did not see pavement like because from our double decker bus you can't see the road you're driving on and every cross street was filled with people as far as the eye could see and i i still to this day think that that was that's more jarring to me than actually playing because baseball's our job like you can ask taylor like you get nervous you get the fight or flight stop but in the moment you're playing the game yeah, and, and, you know, one thing that I said, like, looking back at it, you know, I think a lot of us probably scoffed at this, and we probably, you know, I, I, I look back at it, like, a little bit of me is probably like the dad in me, but the, the, the regime that ran the minor league system that came over and started this kind of, like, I believe there was this massive change that occurred in Chicago. Like, there really was. It started at the bottom, and it was all about just believing. It was believing that it could happen, and they started this comment, and, like, if you go look at old pictures, I'm sure you can find T-shirts that say this. But they started this comment that was, when it happens. And it was such a cliche thing. And, like, all of us kind of looked at each other when we first heard it. Like, come on, dude. Like, when it happens. Well, then, in, in you know, in, in 14, the team kind of starts winning. Then in 15, they get to the playoffs. And you're like, when it happens. And then I specifically remember showing up in 16. And without being asked to, guys on the team were talking about what the parade was going to be like. Guys on the team were talking about that, were ready for it. There was a belief, there, there wasn't, there was an understanding that it was going to happen, that we were going to be the last team on the field after, at the end of the season. And that's all that mattered. And so, like, when you go watch that game seven, everybody's pumped. You go watch the, the uh the the parade like it's it was crazy how many people were there but so many of those guys were prepped for that you guys were ready that the, the the organization had done such a good job of teaching guys that that's what it was about and like i i so 
wholeheartedly believe that that the game has 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 gone analytic which is a great thing you have to create the best players possible but at the end of the day none of it matters if you don't win game seven yeah no and and i'm completely with you that team when so so i I talked to people like i talked to rich hill today and he he was on the dodgers teams that were all really good and stuff and i was telling him about the cubs team and the only thing i mentioned was it wasn't the most talented team I've been on. Like I was on the Mets last year. That's, that's the most talented team I've ever seen in a locker room. Right. It was just like, everybody did their job all the time and they knew their role and they believed that they could do anything in any given situation. Like Schwarber coming off the ACL, believing that he can hit 500 in the world series, like stuff like that. David Ross coming out of the pen, catching Lester in that game and hitting a homer. Dexter Fowler leading the game off. And I remember that the last thing that was said in the rain delay before he went out to the field, was Hayward said, Schwarber's going to lead us off and we're going to get going. And Schwarber just straight up told everyone, he's like, when I get on first base, then we go. And like two pitches into his first at bat single. And as he's jogging down down the line, he's like fist pumping. Like we knew it was going to happen. And- yeah, it, it's such a, it's such a, it was such a, a real thing that it almost happened prior. And like, you know, the, the, we had <clears throat> Chicago had, and like I will, man. I'll, I I really wish we could still talk to this man because he's he's passed. But Ken Revisa was was um, our mental skills guy, and he was Joe Madden's one of Joe Madden's biggest um, advocates. Like they both were together for so long, and man, like he was able to just explain and make it so real at the beginning of every spring training. He sat out 162 baseballs. And then three baseballs, five baseballs, seven baseballs. And he said, look, here's where it is. All you got to do is win this amount of games. All you got to do is win this amount of days and like broke it down and made it seem so realistic, made it seem so real. And like that team, I think you're absolutely spot on. That team was one of the best combinations of youth, young stars, older guys, older stars, and veterans that were just wanted to win. Because there was a group of guys that at the end of the day, the goal was to win. And I tell people this all the time. If you don't worry about your own numbers, if you worry about helping the team, at the end of the year, your numbers are going to look fine. You go look at that 2016 team, all those guys' numbers looked fine. They They were good years, right? Obviously, we've talked about Chris Bryant having that monster year. But Chris Bryant is probably the least selfish baseball player I've ever played with. Like, he wants what's best for the team. No doubt he wants to do – everybody wants to do what's best for them. But, like, by no means was he going out there every day like, man, this is all about me. You know, like, it, it was such a cool atmosphere. And um, it was it was the total package for Chicago. So was that, like, the Madden philosophy? You know, from the outside looking in, everybody saw Madden as this – eccentric guy that loved wine and had the Benny's deal. Like it was just great seeing the cool guy as the manager. But what was, what was Joe Madden, the manager and the guy in the clubhouse like? Um, I, I like Joe a lot. I, I think he does a good job. Um, his philosophy is kind of, if you feel good, wear it. Like he always says that if you feel sexy, wear it. If you want to do something, do it, whatever. And he kind of lets the clubhouse sort itself out. And so in a situation like 2016, when you have David Ross, John Lester, John Lackey, and those guys policing the clubhouse, you have a bunch of young guys like Addison, Javi, Chris, and all those guys that are doing what they say and doing their job at the same time. Yeah. It's a It was a perfect storm, like Taylor said, of 
we're doing whatever we want and whatever we want is winning. And then, yeah. Yeah. I, there's two things that I'll always say about Joe. One, when I met Joe for the first time, I thought that like what you see, like I thought exactly what you thought, Jack, you see the, you see the hippie, you see like this, this guy out there doing all this stuff. I'll be honest with you. Like the first time I met him, what you see out there is, is he's real. Like that's real. When you go, like as a player, you walk by his, his office He's got his hat backwards listening to some old rock music with an aromatherapy diffuser going. Like, that is Joe Madden. But the biggest thing I'll give Joe Madden in Chicago, and I, I don't think this gets talked about enough, honestly, and like, Rob, you can speak to this too, but Javi Baez does not become Javi if he doesn't play for Joe Madden. If, if, if he plays for anybody else, Javi Baez does not get to do that. And I'll even double down on that by saying before Javi made his debut, Joe flew to Puerto Rico to watch him play, to say, I want to learn who Javi is. Like, that's such an underrated aspect of, of being a manager. And man, you know, he, like Rob said, though, like he had, you know, I think, what do you say, three non-playoff teams? He had three meetings a year. If you were a playoff team, you had a fourth. Like, yeah. It was it was truly like, look, I'm gonna have my group of guys that I trust to run the clubhouse. If something happens, I'll I'll fix it. But the reality was, it, it dude, he he just it was it was a he's a player's manager, but he did it the right way. Cool. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think the point that I agree the absolute most is is the hobby thing is 100 true. It's like if hobby comes up in an org that is trying to repress you as a human being, it's hard for him to come out of his shell and be the player that he is. And that player is the guy who makes stuff happen, right? Like he would make a mistake or Wilson's another great example. They would make some base running mistake and Joe would understand that, Hey, that's going to happen with the way that they play. And it was never like, Hey, come talk to me after the game. It was, Hey, I love yeah. the aggressiveness. Keep doing it. Yeah, and, absolutely. But, but what you said about Joe on the field and like on cameras and everything is that was what I was most impressed about is, the first year that he was there and I was watching him on TV, he's got a glass of wine at his press conference and whatever. I'm like, what happens when part of my French this shit hits the fan? Yeah. Like, is he the same guy? And he is, he handles stuff. Yeah. He's super genuine. 90% of my meetings with Joe were terrible. I got sent back to the minor leagues. Right. And every single one, like the first two, he was like, Hey man, whatever. Like you're going to the minor leagues. It's over. After like the third or fourth time I got option, he was like, Hey, this is a tough role. He's like, I'm your manager. I'm telling you to go to the minor leagues. And then that meeting would be over. Like Theo would be in there. Jed would be in there. They'd be like, hey, you're going to the minor leagues, whatever. And after that, Joe would talk to me like a human being. He'd be like, man, yeah, he, gotta yeah, be he, he was really humanizing. He was he was an easy person to talk to. You know, you hear all these a lot of managers that are like, hey, my door's always open. His door literally was always open. Like <clears throat> he was very available. Um you know, I think some people question his decisions. Like, I think a lot of people question what he did with the bullpen, obviously. Yeah, but it was um, baseball decisions. It was never like this right. guy, you know, is is mishandling this. Right, right. Absolutely. And like, um, you know, I, I just I, I think that a lot of it came down to like, man, you wanted to you wanted to win and he wanted to win. And like for a lot of the team, that's what it's about. Like when you're on a good team. You know, Rob was on a couple good teams last year. Like yeah. that's what it's about: wanting to win, and nothing else matters. And 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 he perpetuated that 
feeling for the team. So obviously wanting to win and helping a team win, you have to lean into your specific role. And Rob, your role has almost like changed. It's been on and off occasionally. You've gone from starter at Missouri to reliever to swingman type, then starter, then reliever. You do pretty much everything that's that's asked of you, whether it's in a bullpen role or a starter role. You've changed teams a good bit over the last couple of years. When you have these conversations with teams, do they almost like lay out what they want you to be? Or is it, we'll decide what we want you to be and you're going to roll with that? So it's changed over the last two years. Taylor kind of caught me right at the very start of me changing as a pitcher when I was with Baltimore. And I had the elbow fracture and it uh, sidelined me for about seven months. But that was when I turned into like a four-seam change-up guy. I started being able to strike guys out. I started being able to throw the ball a little bit harder. And I'll never forget this. And like, I, I don't have any bad feelings toward any team I've been on. Like every team I've learned something from. The Angels was one of the most instrumental things to my success because I go into the clubhouse and I sit down with Phil Nevin. I sit down with Perry. I sit down with everybody and I go, I'm whatever you need me to be. Whatever. I can blend into whatever role you need. Just let me know what you need from me. That's how I've always been because that was my role in Chicago. And now that, that was my role with the Mets too. They're like, we need you to go long. Like I started for a good portion of last year as well, just because the Mets were like, we might need length, whatever. And, I, and that that's how I played. Perry sat me down at my end of the year meeting and he told me to cut it out. He was like, you're good. You need to realize you're good. He's like, you can be a one inning guy. You can pitch till you're 35, 36, no problem. But if you keep this, like, I'm going to try to blend into whatever you want, it's not going to work out for you. So he, he was like, go to wherever you're going to work out, throw the ball hard, keep throwing your slider, and tell whatever team gets you, or if you're with us, that you want to be a one-inning guy and you want to get saves and holds and all that stuff. And he was like, tell us what you want to be. Don't let us tell you what you want to be. And so this was the first free agency I went into where I told the Pirates, I was like, hey, like I can go one to two innings. I throw a change if I can get righties out, whatever it is. I was like, but I want to be in the big leagues and I, I want to throw meaningful innings for this team. And I, I think I think that's like a significant part. And, you know, we've talked about this before on this podcast, but like I think a big change that's occurred since you got in, since both of us got in was, you know, you came up. We all came up in this era of, look, I'm a starter. I got to get through five. I got to get through six. I got to figure out how to do that. I got to set guys up. Now, the game today is throw as good as you can for as long as you can and come out of the game. So like setting yourself up as, hey, I want to be a high leverage guy. If that means that I get five outs today, that means I get five outs today. The reality is I want to go as good as I can. And when you notice that I'm starting to falter, you get me out of the game. Like that is where we're at. And I don't think there's honestly unpopular opinion. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Like that's how you see the most talent coming out of the bullpens, coming out of starters. Because look, man, like, you know, when baseball started hundreds of years ago, it was the the bullpen were the bad starters. They were the yeah. failed starters, right? And and I think I don't think that like kept on, but for a really long time. I mean, so what? Like the nineties? No, dude. Have... I mean, more recent than that, like failed starters turned into good relievers, right? Wade Davis, an example of that. Zach Duke, an example of that. Like they're they're littered and and they're still around, to be honest. Honestly, they're they're everywhere. But the the reality is now is that like. As a hitter, you're all, like it used to be like hey, like the meetings used to be, hey, see pitches from the starters so that we can get to the bullpen. Like we want to get to the bullpen, and now it's a similar philosophy, 
But the reasoning is totally different because in 2012, it was, hey, see starters from the – see pitches from the starters so we can get into the bullpen because the bullpen's not as good. So now it's see pitches from the starter because we have to get those bullpen arms throwing three times a series so they're tired at the end because those are the best arms in baseball. Yeah. And you saw – honestly, you saw Kyle Schwarber just – Kyle Schwarber just said, I don't know, uh, I think I think just baseball should said it – or no, I read this. Schwarber's – they asked Schwarber about uh, – playing the Dominican and he was like his one big comment was dude this is a bunch of closers in that bullpen that's going to be fun to deal with yeah you know like basically the winning teams you know are closers there there's five closers on these teams like it's you know the the bullpens are just so different than they were even 10 years ago yeah Yeah. and you're exactly right I think you're going to start seeing a big shift because I trained at push performance this offseason, right? And there's a lot of big leaguers there. Dean Kramer, guys you play with, Kyle Bradish is there, like Walker Bueller trained there, whatever, all, all these names. And the big league bullpens, below board is like 95 Dean, 94 this guy, Rob Z, 91.8. And then it's like the college kids, and it's like 99, 98, 97, 98. And the back end of the bullpen is – hard to hit now and that's why i think like the platoon guys are kind of finding their way out is like you can hit a lefty that's great you're, you're gonna have a job but now all the lefties coming out of the pen are disgusting so you're not getting any more soft tossing like i'm trying to get through two innings lefties like forced contact it's every lefty you face is coming in and throwing 95 and doing all that stuff so it's like your job became that much harder like what tommy listella did for the cubs that job is so much harder now because it's man like, even the eighth guy in the bullpen that's just eating innings is the closer in triple a with 97 98 in the tank right the guy that the guy that i'll talk about that we both played with was pat valeka i always give so much credit to pat valeka and i'll be honest like i think pat valeka got a really bad i I don't know how to say this like i just think he had really bad luck i think his timing was bad because if you go look at pat valeka's career his biggest year was like his second or third year in colorado but the majority of his bats were off the bench, but he was hitting homers. He was hitting, he had like 16 homers one year in, in Colorado, majority off the bench. The issue there was he was a young kid. That's really hard to have a young kid. Tommy Lestella was the same way. And it's extremely difficult to ask those guys to go, hey, because the next year after that, Pat did the same thing and the Rockies weren't winning. So the issue became, hey, now. I'm keeping you on the bench because you can win us the game, but now you're hitting every fourth day. That's not okay. That's ex- that's unbelievably hard to do because when you come in, you're facing Edwin Diaz. Right. You're facing Liam Hendricks. You're facing Josh Hader. You're facing these guys. It's not like you're going in and facing a soft tosser. Like you said, like you're facing the best guy on the staff. Right. Yeah. Well, and one of the new splits that I know that you know, a lot of front offices are looking at, and I know I, I'm sure you guys are looking at, Taylor, you especially as a hitter, is obviously you're looking at platoon splits, right? How does this guy fare against right-handed pitching? How does this guy fare against left-handed pitching? The, the new one is how do guys fare against high velo? How do guys fare against 95-plus? And that's what you see. Like from the fifth inning on, from the sixth inning on, that's what you're seeing in major league games, right? You're seeing 96 to 98. Um, Rob, have you felt like any pressure to change who you are as a pitcher with like the pillars of pitching? It feels like changing over the last five, six years. Yeah. So I completely changed. I, uh, 
it was one of those things where like I was kind of a crossbody lefty specialist guy and that job got eliminated, right? There, there's no more lefty specialists in baseball. And so I went to a guy and I revamped my delivery. The only, the only frustrating part is I went from like a 89, 92 guy that could touch three or four on, on a really good day to now I can sit 93, 94, but that's still considered slow because it's which like, is so weird. Yeah. If yeah. I threw 94 as a lefty in 2017, they'd be like, dude, this guy is a flamethrower. Like when I got drafted, they're like flamethrowing left-handed pitcher. My velo has not changed. And today at the lunch table, they, they were like, Rob, you wouldn't even get uh, pulled over for a speeding ticket with your fastball anymore. It's like, man, I it's gone up. Like I, my velo has creeped up every year. And it's just like the games creeps up, mine follows. The game creeps up, mine follows. And I can't like get above it. I, I, I got two things for you. One. Me and Rob both played with a guy. He's been on the podcast, but like we talked about facing guys in games and how the like historically you'd look in the bullpen, you'd go, oh, "This guy's not throwing ninety eight. Okay, sick. I get to face this guy." Pierce Johnson's a guy where you see this guy coming in, he's not going to throw ninety eight, but you do not want to face him because you don't want to see that breaking ball, right? Like if you get to the breaking ball, you're out. The other thing I want to say is like I will give MLB some credit because I think the bullpen stuff has gotten better because of the three batter minimum. Like you've got to be better. And and that doesn't mean that baseball as a sport has gotten better. Like I think having Oliver Perez, uh, having Trevor Miller in the game, there was like that. I really liked that aspect. I think that created a, an extra piece for managers to have to deal with. But I think the overall stuff in the bullpens has increased because you're going, okay, look, I've, he's got to face. He's at no matter what he's going to have to face an opposite side hitter. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I completely agree with you. And it, it brings value to guys who can do it. And yeah. I remember being in the bullpen last year, they had Aaron Loop, who just absolutely devastated lefties. They had Jose Quijada, who's fastball that devastates both sides. And it's like, the game has changed now to where Aaron Loop, me and him were talking about it. They're taking away the shift, right? He's a ground ball heavy pitcher. And so he's got to adjust the game and them not having lefty specialists anymore. He had to learn how to get righties out. And it's like Aaron Loop's 35 years old. He's had a lot of success in his career and he's still adjusting to stay in this game. And like, those are the guys that stick around forever. And I kind of like the guys who have to make adjustments. Like I had to, like I couldn't get righties out at all once I became a, a bullpen only guy. And now it's like, I love when righties step in. I'm, I'm going to attack you with my changeup. I'm going to attack you with a fastball up and we're, we're going to go to work. And like, you're exactly right. The, the, average bullpen guy has gotten better because they've had to adjust or they've been gone. Yeah. Like, I mean, even let's, you, right. Like you were a quality starter because you had a really good feel for pitching. When you went to the bolt, when you go to the bullpen, you can't feel for pitching. You're not setting guys up. You're seeing guys one time. It's got to be the best of the best. So like, that was a change for you right away. You had to figure out on the fly, like, Hey, I got to get these guys out right now. There's no, Hey, I gave up a couple hits. I gave up a run. That's okay. You can't do that, especially yeah. not in the big leagues, especially not for the Mets for the 2016 Cubs. Like, you can't do that for really good teams. You got to figure out how to get zeros and get zeros fast. And like those guys, like you talked about, Aaron Loop, man, like that guy's had a lot of success for a long time. He was one of the best relievers in the game a couple yeah. years ago. Like, you're right. The fact that that guy's gonna have to figure something out is is crazy. But those guys tend to figure it out. Those guys yeah. tend to put it together and go, look, like, I'm a sinker baller. All I got to do is figure out how to get the guy to hit the ball a little bit 
to the right, a little bit to the left. And I'll tell you what, man, some of those guys are so incredible at doing that. Kyle Hendricks is one of those guys. Like, I believe half the pitches that Kyle Hendricks threw, he'd go, okay, here's where this guy's going to hit the ball. Like, yeah. you know, like, and, and Rob will attest to this, but I, I, you know, and I preach this, that like he's, Kyle to me, I don't know that I've ever seen a guy that studies hitters more than Kyle Hendricks. And I find it so funny that he's deemed the professor because truly like, that dude studies baseball, studies hitters more than anybody to the point that, like I said, I really think he throws the pitch and he goes, all right, this ball is going to be a ground ball to Javi. All right, this ball is going to be a ground ball to Zobers. So, like he knew, he knew when he let go of the ball where the ball was going. Yeah, there was multiple times when he was, so he won the ERA title in 60. Yeah. There was multiple times that year where we'd be in the bullpen watching him and he'd get through like two or three innings and like the veteran bullpen guys would like kick their feet up and they'd be like, he's going seven or eight. And it was just like he'd lead off 110-mile-an-hour line drive back up the middle, and it'd be like within three pitches there was a ground ball to Zobris. And we knew it was coming. They knew it was coming. The hitter was trying everything he could not to do it, and it's just flick it to second base, double play. And, Taylor, it's got to be so fun catching a guy like that. I think Alec Mills is another one. It's got to be Dude, we Alec Mills was the first interview on this podcast, and I I – Dude, like I, that's the that's so funny you say that because like one thing that Kyle and Alec do very similarly that you kind of did as a starter you don't do now is Kyle throws three pitches to the same spots whether you're a righty or whether you're a lefty. Alec very similar. You're going to get a fastball changeup slider if you're a righty, a fastball changeup curveball if you're a lefty. So you know what you're getting, and he's gonna just throw them in better spots than than you should. Um, and both of those guys, you're spot on, man. Like it's, it's so fun watching those guys go about their work. It, it's just fun because like, that's the puzzle. That's the chess game. That's the, the game calling that you hear about, um, that, you know, which like going into game calling, man, like I hope at the college level and, and you're, you know, you're dealing with it, right? Like you've thrown to a lot of guys that have come out of college that's one aspect of this game that's changed is that catchers don't necessarily have quite the understanding of calling games. No, no offense to them and no problem of theirs. It's just because they don't get to do it. They, college coaches are doing it and I can't really blame them. These college coaches are making millions of dollars a year, millions of dollars a year because they're winning. So like if I'm a college coach, I'm going to call pitches. I want to try to win, but like, you're hindering that guy's uh, production. You're hindering that guy's growth. And, you know, the, it'll be interesting to see with me with the pitch comm what happens. Because are we going to get to a point where, like, there's a guy in the bullpen, there's a guy in the dugout signaling to both of them? So that was my question. We actually talked about it today in our meeting was they're, like, teams are messing around with, like, the pitcher being able, able to call it. So it's, like, sitting on your wrist and you can call your pitch and everything like that. And – Dude, for me, watching a really good catcher, and I was spoiled because I had you for so many years. Like, I thought Tim Fedorovich was really good. I like all these guys. The Cubs would always bring in one really, really good catcher. Christian Menez. Yeah. I mean, yeah. these guys are just like – not that like you all could hit and everything, but it's like it didn't matter. Like, you guys brought so much value to the team, even if you went up there and punched out 125 times in a row. And watching that spoiled me because this year I played with the auto zone for about two weeks. And it's like two strikes. These guys are popped up, ready to throw. And it's like, there's no more catching. Like, and nope. I like 
the consistency of the zone. Like once you know where a zone is, I think it's very advantageous to pitchers. Same with hitters. Like if you control the zone, then you you're good with the auto zone. But for me, like there's so much beauty in like, watching a catcher work that I can't ever not have that in the game. Well, and your arsenal is so clearly art of pitching. So I'm sure you appreciate art of catching as well. And I know Taylor appreciates that. I was just talking to Jason DeLay about it when you guys got back from Charlotte and he caught in Charlotte where you guys were dealing with the automatic ball strike, the ABS. And I was like, and DeLay, you know, obviously really good defensive catcher. He had experience catching. It was a who's who at Vandy and he struggles a bit offensively. Like he knows his value is receiving it's handling a staff and i asked what was that like catching with the abs and he said i felt useless and that was a really like hard word to hear from a guy that has made a career out of doing that i i'm curious i mean your thought on that taylor totally uh although jack i also caught with the abs in charlotte okay sorry sorry yeah my bad um (laughs) but uh but uh yeah you know the one thing i've said is like when I'm done playing, uh, I will love the ABS because the one thing I did like about the ABS was you didn't get, I say this, uh, you didn't get like the arguments with the umpires about ball and strike. And and so that made the game faster. Like, I know it's a little thing and it's crazy I say that because German Mercedes actually got thrown out in the game with the ABS on right. balls and strikes, which kind of blows my mind. Uh, but... I believe that catching is the only position like it in all of sports. You know, I, I think quarterback is the exact same thing. Like I'm not taking anything away from those guys. I'm not saying we're it's harder to do than anything else. I just think it's different. It's yeah. the most different aspect of any position in any sport. And I think you're taking away arguably the most important part of that, that aspect um, by using the ABS, but who knows what'll happen? I, I think that, you know, I, I think everybody will, will adjust. Look, it's coming. So, like, at this point, guys need to get ready for it more than, more than like, fear of it and more than, hey, what are we going to do when it comes? Because it is coming at some point. Um, yeah. I, look, at the end of the day, you're just going to create a new player. It's just going to be a new challenge for somebody. It's, it's, it's not like baseball hasn't changed before, uh, but – it is going to be something totally different behind the plate. I think you're going to see the best hitter on your team that's not playing in the field. Like, that's who I'm going to put back there. I mean, if you think about it, the Cubs would have left Schwarber back there. 100%. And I think they thought about that. I think if Schwarber doesn't get hurt, he's a catcher. Yeah. I think if Schwarber doesn't get hurt, you might see Wilson Contreras on another team and Kyle Schwarber's catching. Huh. But the other thing I'll say is, like, Schwarber would have – Schwarber would have been, first of all, Schwarber's one of the hardest workers of anybody I've ever met. Schwarber would have been fine. The, the way but, he changed his physique in that one offseason was insane. Oh, dude, it's a joke. It's a joke. He's he's as hard of a worker as anybody I've ever met. But he he also, like, one, he hits enough. But two, he would have been around a veteran staff. So, like, that's not quite as important to me as if, if he were on a team. If he were on the Kansas City Royals, it's going to throw four – going to go throw four rookies or four guys that are in there pre-arbitration that's where you need the veteran that's where you need Salvador Perez right like you know we talked about this with Logan Ohapi on on the uh the the call up like he's gonna start next year and you probably threw to Logan but like he's gonna start next year for for Los Angeles he's gonna benefit from the fact that you've got, got a Tyler Anderson guys yeah that know what they're doing 
the funnest game I've ever caught in my entire life. What not? Uh, I shouldn't say that. So many people are gonna be mad at me for that. One of the most fun games I've ever caught was uh, like might have been my first spring training, 2012. Scott Feldman came down to throw a game in in Cubs in the minor leagues, and he called every pitch. I'm not gonna say how he did it because it was incredibly cool to me, but he called every pitch, and it was so much fun. But I got to learn from a veteran. Like after every inning, I'd go to him and say, "Hey, like." Why did you do that? Why did we do this instead of that? And it led me to a point where Rob can attest to this because I've done it with Rob, where one thing I believe as a catcher is, and this is this differs from a lot of guys, is that I don't tell I tell guys at the beginning of the year, I don't care if you shake. I'm extremely different from a lot of guys. A lot of guys, like if they put something down, they want it. I don't care. I want your pitch at 100%, not my pitch 80%. So but what I do say is the only thing I'll tell you is I'm calling every pitch with a two pitch sequence. So if you're going to shake to something, you better have another pitch ready for the next time, whether you've thrown a strike or not. So when we get back in the dugout and you, you know, Rob shake shook to a curveball and I'll go, Hey, why did you do that? Let me tell you why I wanted the fastball. You tell me why you wanted the curveball. And a lot of times, man, like that's like, that's like guys will look at me like, well, I, I don't I don't know. But then you get guys like Rob that'll go, well, I went to the curveball because I saw this and this and I wanted to do this. Um, but, it, you know, that's that's just a, that's an interesting aspect of catchers that you'll still see even with the ABS. Right. Yeah. I, I got three things that while you were talking, they all popped into my head. I'm going to rapid fire these off. Yeah. Sick. Logan Ohapi gets called up. They're like, hey, you're going to dress, but you're not activated. And this guy – I don't know how well you guys like. No, I, you said you talked to him, right? No, 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 no. We talked about him. Oh, we talked about him, dude. This guy, he shows up, and he's like walking around the clubhouse like he's been there three years. And I'm like, okay, I, I like that vibe. He's in a like, good way, in a good way or in a bad way? Very good way. Very good way. Like he's very hey, calm. He's confident. I don't. I'm. I'm, I'm going to cut you off. I don't want to cut you off, but I'm going <laughs> to do it because one thing we talked about, Joe Madden. One thing I praised Joe Madden on was talking about the levels of big leaguer and like understanding that when you go into a clubhouse that, Hey, like the first time you go in, you need, you're like, you're searching for yourself. You're searching for your life. Like, but you need to have the ability to have confidence. It is so hard. Rob, Rob was a high pick walking into that Chicago clubhouse was hard. Like yeah, it is. same thing in Los Angeles. So I'm sure that's an, like, all I'm saying here is like that is an incredible compliment to Logan yeah. to having the ability to do that. No, I'm glad you explained it because if you didn't, it probably wouldn't make the story make as much sense. But he walked around like he's been there for a while. And I was like, okay, I like that because that's something I, I struggled with very hard. Because it's like, hey, I'm a big part. Like Rob's going to close games. Rob's going to do this. In 16, I'm a big part. 17, I have a great spring. I go to AAA. Brian Dunsing and Mike Montgomery are shoving. And I, so every time I went up, it was it was a filler guy. So I went from like, I have a huge role on this team to you're just kind of here until we're good. And then you're gone. And like yeah. being able to mentally overcome that is tough. But so, so Logan walks in, they tell him to go down to the bullpen and sit. This guy brings his gear down there. This guy catches every single guy tells the bullpen catchers to take a day off. He's like, I'm catching tomorrow. I want to get locked in. Like this guy could have been kicking his feet up, enjoying his first day in the big leagues. He's back there strapping up blocking balls. Like, I loved it. And then sure enough, as soon as I threw it to him in the game, he's working his ass off for you. And I think he's going to be an incredible player. Uh, number two was you guys need to find the video of me throwing to Schwarber this year in the big leagues. 
because he took a daddy hack on a slider, fouled it off, and Dan Vogelback's on the top step. And I look at Schwarber and I'm like, because, I mean, if he makes contact with this ball, it's 500 feet. He, he's like on his knee. I go, damn, like looking at him. Vogie's laughing at him. He looks at Vogie. They start laughing at each other. I rear up my next fastball at 95 at the knees for a ball. And it zooms in on Schwarber's face. He looks up at the radar and he goes, 95? Because he caught me for four years. And I was like 91, 92. And it was just such a fun at bat, which he ended up hitting, the, I think, a triple off me. It was a it was a one hop to the left fielder that he misplayed a little bit. And Schwarber ended up hitting a triple off of me. But it was just one of those where it was like Dan Vogelback I played with for five years is on my team. Schwarber, who I played with for five years, is on the other team. And we're all here in Philly, like, competing against each other. I thought it was so cool. Last thing that I had on this was, do you feel at all the impact that you made on this game of baseball? Like, you mentored Wilson. You mentored Schwarber. You mentored Dean Kramer and Kyle Bradish, who I trained with this offseason. And both of them said that they learned more from you than any other player they've ever played with. And they couldn't, like, they said you were one of the best teammates, all that stuff. So, there's plenty of other guys and everything, but do you feel like the impact that you have on baseball right now? I Here's what I'll say is that, like, I think that something that I started, and, and you were there for it, in 2020 um, when we went to the alt site and I was there with Adley, something that I started to, like, learn was, like, you know, and my son was born in August. Like, this is probably, like, coincidence, but not coincidence, but, like, it became just as cool for me to watch helping somebody get to the big leagues as it was for me to get to the big leagues. And I think that's where like my love, you know, prior to that, I really wanted to go in the front office. I really, I was like, when I'm done playing, I don't want to coach. I want to go in the front office. Prior, and then as soon as that happened, now I'm like, man, like I want to make a difference on the field. Um, I, I just, I, it's so fun to watch somebody else succeed. It's like giving presents at Christmas, right? Like you see that and you have that like, man, you had something to do with that. Maybe it, it, it's such a cool aspect. And, you know, I lucked out that I was around a bunch of really talent. I've been in three organizations now and all three of them had incredible talent. And thankfully I was able to be around them. And some of those guys uh, were able to listen to some of the things I said or able to talk to me and we were able to, to learn from each other. But um, thank you for that. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's an incredible compliment. You know, I I've said for years, like, and you know, Rob was there for this. Like Rob, one of the things I said when, when I got put on the phantom for the first time was like the hardest thing to do was figure out how to compete. And, and that was the hardest thing because my whole life I was a competitor. I was an athlete and my competition, I probably never even told you this, but like my company, what I did, is I just decided that I was going to try to be the best teammate I could possibly be. Because when I got home at night, I could go, did I do that? That was my competition. And I had to answer to myself. And who better to answer to than yourself? Because I couldn't lie. I had no. to go, what was I? Like Rob remembers in Tennessee, dude. In Tennessee, I was catching every pregame bullpen, every bullpen during the game, every bullpen. Every time a pitcher needed warmed up, I was running down and doing it. I was hitting in between innings when I needed to. I was helping guys hit in the cage. It didn't matter. And I didn't care because, like, I wanted everybody else to get better because I wanted to be the best teammate I could possibly be. And, you know, like, this is the last thing I'll say, but, like, you know, Rob, we talk about 
uh, guys that have played for a long time and like the most important question that you'll ask, the hardest question that I will ask you will not, or the easiest question I'll ask you will not be who was the most talented player you played with. The easiest question I'll ask you is who was your favorite teammate? And you'll be able to come up with that right away every single time. You know what I mean? And, and, and that's, that's something that's really important for people at home to take for me is like, we care about being really good baseball players. We care about making a bunch of money. We care about all that. But at the end of the day, most of us care about being really good people. And yeah. and I think that that's something that a lot of people just don't think is true. Yeah. And I feel like some people say it, like when, when they're younger, they're like, I would rather be a good teammate or whatever, and they don't believe it. But until you play with somebody like you, like I know I'm just like gassing you up right now, but until you play with somebody like you where – you kind of messed me up because I thought what you did was normal. So I thought the guy who was not catching would go catch every pen, would catch the pregame pens, would go in with someone who's slumping and go hit with them in the cage, would take John Andrioli after a game because he slid too early once and help him learn where sliding would be most beneficial for him. I thought that was normal. So then I go to other organizations and it's not normal. And then I play with you again in 2020 and boom, it's normal again. And it's like, Watching Adley Rutschman follow you around the alt site everywhere you went and actively try to learn from you was one of the coolest things that I've ever seen. Man, you know, and and the last thing I want to talk about, because this will go great for our podcast, but like I, I've said, you know, I thought that up until I met Adley, I thought Javi was the most talented human being I'd ever met in my entire life. And I still, like, look, Javi can start at eight positions on any Major League Baseball team. He was going to be a first-round pick as a catcher. I truly believe that. There is not a better player that I have ever met in any aspect of the game. And you add to that the human being that he is as Adley Rushman. And, like, for those at home, you want to root for somebody, root for that guy. Because not only is he going to be a stud, but he is a great human being. Yeah, if his name was not Adley Rutschman, you would never know who it was. Like he walks around like he's the 780th pick in the draft. Like he just, and I'll never forget the alt site where I'm working out. I can't throw the second half of that year, and I just keep hearing that foghorn go off when I'm in the weight room, and I keep looking out the weight room door, and Adley's trotting around the bases. Like that kid just got into pro ball, and he's mashing like AAA big league arms. And yep. The alt site for the Orioles was talented, man. A lot of those guys played in the big leagues for a long time, and it's still awesome. and 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 one of them is going to be a number one for a long time, I think. In Grayson, I think Grayson is going to be a number one for for a really long time. Well, and, and the top prospect in the game was there, right, Gunnar Henderson? I mean, like one, yeah, look, Rob. Like one thing I've said about Gunnar, like, and I, and man, I, this is the biggest. This is the biggest thing I can give Gunnar because biggest compliment I can give him because this is the truth like when Gunner first got there so so Jack Gunner got to the alt site late so Gunner the the Orioles did their alt site differently than most um which depending on which side of the game you were on either rubbed you wrong or rubbed you right it they they had a lot of prospects right like we had very few veterans me and Rob for a long time outside of Brian Holiday were the oldest and most veteran guys on that team on that at that alt site, most of the guys there were Grayson Rodriguez, DL Hall, those kind of guys. They brought Gunner late, um, but when Gunner showed up, and I remember talking to Ryan Fuller about this. So Ryan Fuller and uh, oh Anthony Villa were the two hitting guys there, and when they first showed up, 
Gunner got crushed, dude. Like every bat. I mean, he was probably, and he's gonna kill me for saying this, but we'll talk about it again when we interview him. But like, dude, I, I'm saying he was probably, you know, he probably hit a hundred through his first 20, 30 at bats. And I remember looking at looking at Ryan Fuller and going, dude, we are gonna learn. We're gonna find out who this guy is. I kid you not, by the end of the camp, the best player, he was the best player. Well, Adler was the best player there. He was the second best player there. And I almost feel like it was more impressive than Adley because he was a freaking high school kid that had just shown up. He had seen A ball pitching. Now he's facing Rob Zestrizny, Grayson Rodriguez, Tom Eshelman. Uh, Dean Kramer, he's facing these guys that have had a lot of success in the big leagues, and he figured out a way to to compete and not only compete but succeed. And he yeah. did it with relatively little help. Man, like that was so impressive to me. I don't know if it was impress- as impressive to you, but it was it was incredible to me. Well, they they had the locker rooms split. They had position players and pitchers. And, dude, the conversations that went on in the pitcher's locker room was when Gunner first got there, it was like, this kid's young. He doesn't stand a chance. He figured out he how, didn't. how we were trying to pitch him. Probably took him, what, two weeks? Yeah. He figured out how we were trying to pitch him, and we couldn't sneak anything by him after that. Like, he could get his barrel to everything we threw. And I remember facing him last year in Norfolk. I I, I was throwing him lefty-lefty. Or he's is he switch or lefty? Lefty. He's a lefty. Dude, I was throwing him lefty-lefty change-ups. I was pulling everything out of the bag, and he was barreling him into the dugout, barreling him into the dugout. And you, you, he's just one of those hitters where you see him, and Chris and Javi are the two perfect examples. First time I saw them play, I was like, okay, this is different. And we didn't know how different at the time, but it was so different watching those guys play. Like, they they were hitting – Chris was hitting 340, and he was frustrated because he had, he had a bad at-bat, his fifth at-bat of the game. <laughs> There are there are levels to this, and you you knew it immediately. Like once I saw Adley and Gunner, I was like, okay, they're different. I can't wait to see what they turn into. It's the same thing when I saw Dean throw for the first time. I was like, I don't know who Dean Kramer yeah. is, but the way the ball comes out, how smooth his delivery is, I was like, this guy's going to be able to repeat whatever he's doing. He looks really good, and he went and had an unbelievable year last year. So the last thing this is this will be the last thing I want to say because because we've been in. We have we've had like what uh, I've had three organizations. You've had I don't know eight now. Yeah. How many of it? Seven. I think this is my seventh. Yeah. So, but we've had three of the same, and of those three, all three of them in the minor league level were incredibly talented. Like we saw Chris Bryant, Albert Amora, Kyle Schwarber, Ian Happ, that whole group, right? Like of guys that was just oh my gosh. And then we both were in Baltimore, where we got to see Grayson Rodriguez, D.L. Hall, Adley Rutschman, Dean Kramer, those guys. And Rob, just for you, like you're in camp now, you're going to see an incredible amount of talent. You're going to see, like I've said, I don't think he's the best player I've ever seen, but I think he's going to be one of the best players in the history of the game. I think he's going to be one of the best power hitters in the history of the game, and O'Neill Cruz. Like the dude is is the dude is going to be an absolute monster. Uh, is that your? Is that yeah? You got a you got an event you got to go to? No, no, no. My wife's modeling deal. Let me decline that real quick. Sorry, now. <laughs> All right, go on. My wife just texted me and asked me when I was done, so we're both in the same spot. Um, but no, but like 
it's crazy how how uh you know I, i'll be interested to hear like we need i want to have you on again after spring training because i want to hear your thoughts on I'd love to break down the three organizations that we both played with and yeah. where you think all three of them ranked. Yeah, no, I would love to do that. I, uh, that's something I pay attention to a lot more now is like where the org is headed, like how they're developing these young guys. And you've already said, it, I've only been here two and a half weeks and dude, seeing some of these young catchers, they have ND, they have uh, Henry Davis, I think his name is. Yep. And these guys are well beyond their years. And it's like, it's so fun to see because yeah, this is now the third time that I've been in a situation like this where it's like, I was with the Mets and it's like, the young guys are good, but it's like, who cares? Cause the big league team is unbelievable. Now it's like, these young guys are the future. And like pirates fans have to be excited because there are some dudes coming and it's so impressive to watch. Freaks. Yeah. yeah there's some freaks. Rob, last one for you, for me. And then we always end it with Taylor saying, you know, something nice about the gas. So listen, you just gas Taylor up. Taylor's going to gas you up at the tail end, but you mentioned different, right? Guys seem different. You just played with, the most different human being in major league history in Otani at the end of the 2022 season. So I, I just got to ask player you like, in the game right now. Yeah. Best mind. player in the game. And it's like not close. I don't think, cause he, he can do both. Um, I mean, obviously everybody searches for that unique thing they can learn about Shohei Otani. Like what's one thing you picked up about that dude. He's very disciplined. And it's not that, I don't think anyone knows that, but I don't know if everyone knows the level of di discipline that he is. Like he's there early every day. He handles the media, which is incredible to me because there's a media circus everywhere he goes. He handles it gracefully every single time he gets his pitching work in on his own. He's got his translator with him and they go through the drills. They have him film his drills so he can go back and rewatch himself throwing plyos into a wall. Like this guy is immensely talented. We played with immensely talented guys. But both him and Trout were what was another one there. They never let that get to him. Like they don't have down years because they train the same way every year. They're looking for new ways to improve. They're look they're looking on things they don't do well to improve on. Like Otani sped his delivery up a little bit. He added like two or three pitches over the course of the last three years. Like this is a guy who's perennially an MVP, and he's always breaking down his own footage. He's always breaking down what he's doing right, what he's doing wrong, how he can physically get better to play this game and. I mean, we, we, we said this a hundred times, but Taylor can tell you being a position player in the big leagues is so hard on your body. A catcher far more than anything else, but this guy throws 150 innings, plays yeah. a full big league season. Like, I don't think people understand how impressive it is. Like, I think Aaron Judge is one of the best hitters that has ever walked the face of this earth. But I would give the MVP to Otani because I don't know how that man Every time. The dude's, got a, the dude's got a top 10 exit below and a top 10 time to first base. <laughs> I mean, he is and he's got a top 10 fastball. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. And um, I, I don't like to get in the middle. I know it's a big debate or whatever. And like, they're both great players. So I, I don't want to be like, this guy's better than this guy or whatever. But it's just, to me, if Otani does what he did last year, where he's a top five pitcher in the league and a top five hitter in the league, that should win the MVP until he cannot do it anymore. He is the most valuable. He is the definition of the most valuable player in baseball without question. Shohei, the other thing is, and I want to ask because I don't know, but I would like just assuming underratedly large human being. Yeah, he he's the only dude. Like, there's been two. John Lester was another one where I watched John Lester on TV a bunch, but when I saw yeah. him, it's just it's a lot bigger than you think. Otani is deceptively huge, but his jersey is tailored so well to where he looks like normal sized, and then 
he'll, he gets in the locker room and he stands up and he is, he is wide. He is tall. He is strong. Like it is very deceptive how big he is. And to, for him to move like that at his size is incredible to me. Yeah, it is. Uh, all right, Jack, I'll, I'll wear out, I'll wear out Rob here. You know, Perfect. I think that, I think that something that's really impressive about Rob man is like, and it's going to sound bad to start, but like Rob has seen adversity at all different aspects of his career. Um, he's seen adversity on the performance side. He's seen adversity on the just straight up stuff side. He's seen adversity on the injury side. Um, you know, he's a guy that's got that broke his foot twice in the same spot on the same way. Like got hit with a comebacker and broke his same foot twice. Um, this is somebody that, like I said, he was a high pick and had one of the most interesting interesting routes to get to the big leagues because it wasn't easy. It was a guy that had to prove that he could do um, a little bit of everything. And he did that. And I think that Rob probably didn't even know that he needed to do that. He was a high pick. Most high picks know exactly what they got to do to get to the big leagues. This dude had to show five different things before he got there. And he did. The most impressive thing for me about Rob. uh, I mean, like, and everybody will point to this, but dude, in 2016, he was on the NLCS roster as a rookie for a team that had not won the World Series in 108 years. And there was no fear there. And there was no fear of Joe putting him in the game. That is an incredible aspect to somebody, somebody's personality, somebody's perseverance. Um, and, and, you know, I, I just think that the other thing is, like, from that, you then go to his next route. Like, that was great. That was all good and well. Go look at the next part of Rob's career. Rob's career didn't skyrocket from there, right? He went to the big leagues every few years. And then from 2020 to 2021 and 2022, he had to find his way back. And he had to figure out, how do I get back to the big leagues? And he did. And in 2022, he got back to the big leagues with one of the best teams in baseball and one of the most talented teams in baseball. And, and I think that, that's just another testament to Rob and, and having the ability to overcome adversity. And we talk about that all the time and how important that is, but man, like you were a testament to that. The last thing I'll say about Rob is, is, you know, you talked about me and having effect with guys. I don't know that I've, I've been, played with a bunch of guys that had pitchers listen to them. Like pitchers listen to you, pitchers listen to you. And it's not talking about pitching. It's talking about how you go about pitching. And that's just as important. How you go about it, how you show up every day, and I, I just really think that's a testament to you as a person. And and it's a it's a really cool thing uh, to be able to wear on your sleeve at the end of the day. Yeah, I, I appreciate you saying that. That <laughs> I got a little emotional thinking about it. I'm not kidding with you. I've had a if I retired today, I had a good career. Same with you. Like actually, great career. You know, top one percent get get to the big leagues. You made it. Like but we always have such a higher level where we want to get to and stuff. So we always kind of feel like we're not doing what we need to do. Or those years I wasn't in the big leagues. I was like, man, I'm kind of a failure. And this year I walked into push performance where I was working out. I didn't really know anyone. I knew Dean and all them, but I didn't really know all the guys. And one guy in particular walked up to me and he, he goes, you're Rob Zestrisny. And I go, yeah. And he, he goes, I've heard that you are hilarious. You're such a fun guy to be around. And I was like, thanks for saying that, man. And not two minutes later, another big league guy walked up and goes, hey, you're Rob Z, right? I was like, yeah, he's like, dude, I heard that you are such a good teammate. And like was like saying these things, that meant more to me than any other compliment I got. So when you yeah. say something like that, man, like 
it genuinely means so much to me. Like being on the World Series was great. Winning the World Series and all that stuff is great. But like you said, like it means a lot to me to be called a good teammate or like, and I, I had learned from you and I learned from a lot of other guys, but that is so like, I, like I'm getting emotional talking about it because it's it means so much, man. Like it's it's something that about I, being a good human being, dude. Like at the end of the day, it's about being a good human being. You know, yeah. like we can we can be good athletes all all we want, but man, there's a different aspect to those dudes that want to be good human beings. And and the teams that have good human beings that are good players are the teams that succeed. Exactly, and it, it they're they're hard to find, and so even being considered in that category at all makes me feel so good, but. Yeah, man, just I think coming up with the Cubs was both good, good for both of us because we saw the immense talent. We saw the best players in the world, but we also saw those guys who kind of stuck around. We, we, we saw those guys who maybe weren't the best player in the world, but they kept moving up the ladder. They, they kept getting chances. They, they kept getting all that stuff. And it's like, like for me, that, that was you. It's like you were all you, you were hitting 300, so you were a great player. But it was just like, if anything else, if, or if nothing else, I want to be like that. I want people to remember me that way. Like, we affectionately call you the mayor of Iowa, but genuinely like the fans loved you. You were great with the fans. You were great with everybody. And that's just how I want to be remembered when I walk away from this game. Six, you know, and Rob, the last, I, I do want to say this, yeah. Jack, this is going to be a two-parter at this point, right? Like, no, we've that's gone fine. Down half, but, Hey, this is but, so much fun for me sitting here, just listening to this type of thing, because like, it's purely you and I've gotten to know Taylor well. And like, in an hour 20, Rob, like you've opened yourself up to us. And it's really cool to see like two genuinely good human beings and teammates heaping love on each other. Like that's a cool thing to experience. Well, and and like this goes back to like that was something I think was created when we were in Chicago. Like you, you know, you hear that like, you know, the clubhouse is your family, yada, yada, yada. And I I don't doubt that. Like, I think there's a lot of clubhouses that, you know, your family, your family. And and a lot of times it just means that what happens in the clubhouse stays in the clubhouse. I grasp that. Um, But it's something else to be said when guys are hanging out outside of the field. You know, like, I won't name names, but in Chicago, there were plenty of times that guys had suites, that guys booked extra rooms, that guys booked dinners. And it wasn't, hey, I'm taking I'm taking my buddy. It's, hey, I'm taking the whole team. We're going to dinner. You're coming up to my suite. We're all hanging out. That was that was an eye opener to me. Like, hey, this is how we do it. This is how it's done, and this is important. This is not. It's not just about playing baseball because in the big leagues, everybody's really good about playing baseball. Um, you know. So I, I, I uh, yeah, this was fun. This was all. This was this was a fun one for me. Yeah, no, I uh. I, I came on here, like, I, I love to joke around. I love to do all that that stuff. But it's like, I'll say these two examples. I get nervous when I haven't seen someone in a long time or talked to someone in a long time because I'm like, it's just you haven't seen him in forever. Pierce Johnson in El Paso, I hadn't seen the guy in about a year. I text him, and he's like, hey, do you want to go grab breakfast or whatever in the morning? And we go, sure, we'll go on Thursday. Well, on Wednesday, I'm at the coffee shop. Pierce walks in. And so I go, hey, Pierce. I talked to him for about an hour about everything, his family, my family, baseball, his career, Japan, everything. And I, I would have told you it was about 10 minutes, but it was like an hour and 10 minutes of us talking. And it felt like 10 minutes. Same with this podcast. Like you just said an hour. Yeah. I was about to say, we're like an hour and a half in. It's like, I just, I keep checking the the clock. It's like, Oh my gosh. Like, dude, we've just been like chatting. Like, and for those at home, like, 
this is kind of what happens in the in the clubhouse by the way like this is it like guys that know each other guys that don't know each other when you like when me and if me and rob's like if i played against rob next year if i played with rob next if i played against rob next year and i was in iowa and he was in in indianapolis this is what would happen we would go to the local bar after the game and we would be there until midnight we wouldn't be there until they're taking shots we'd be there at midnight because we're just talking like we're best friends because that's what happens on good teams and, and good people that play the game. Yeah, could not agree more. Love it. Everybody go talk to their wives. Rob, this was awesome, and we're going to get you back on and talk about the Pirates <laughs> talent. Okay, perfect. Thank you for having me on. Thank you.